Every age fraught with discord and danger seems to spawn a leader meant only for that age, a political giant whose absence, in retrospect, seems inconceivable when the history of that age is written. Wheel of Genre, the podcast where we thought we were the people in the midst of it, but actually we are just vicariously reading the characters, the stories of other people's lives, like some kind of John Keats cyborg. I'm Zach. I'm Bob. I'm John. That had so many layers. <laughs> I, don't, I really I don't, don't know who I am anymore. <laughs> I, I don't know how long I can keep up these uh, more and more, more and more unlikely of puns that uh, hmm. keep coming up. Is that a pun or just a crisis? I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> All right. This time we read Dan Simmons, the, the Fall of Hyperion. We are cutting this one up in two. So we read up to chapter 25, not including chapter 25. We saw the, the letters, the numbers 25, and we cut it Ram. right there. I think the first thing to get out of the way is how is this one different than Hyperion, the prequel to this? I mean, for one, it's not it's it's not really resembling the Canterbury Tales anymore. We've not got all these six individual stories that are each sort of like separate from the original time of Hyperion, but rather we just have sort of a two, uh, I won't say parallel, but concurrent narratives that we sort of switch back to. We have one narrative, which is you know had the sort of different journeys of the members of the Shrike pilgrimage. And they're in sort of encounters with the Shrike after sort of where we leave off after the first book. But we also have this other narrative in which Joseph Seven is the main character, who's the second iteration of the John Keats robot from Von Lamia's story in the first book. And he's really telling the story of the hegemony and ouster war, the build-up to that war, and how he was brought in essentially or ostensibly as a portrait artist for Minor Gladstone. But really, Minor Gladstone seemed to have you know more in mind for him, more in store for him than just that. Um, he's getting afforded quite a importance that's not really warranted by his position so yeah that's sort of what's going on but it's very very different in that regard from hyperion but it does definitely follow directly on from it i think our our answers now we've talked about when we get information that tells us about hyperion that tells us about what's going to happen and about the significance of the shrike and the pilgrimage now it feels a lot more clear each time we get bits of these information and there's no competing hmm interpretation of these things it feels like we're getting direct answers even though we're going back and forth between the severn part and the pilgrimage we're getting answers about what the different ai factions want we're getting answers about what's going to happen with the ousters so it's it's drawn out a little bit more but i think it's more clear now more straightforward i can't tell if that's because the first time we encountered all of this new information, it was like, wham, wham, wham. Mm. Like, like here's some history. Here's some culture. Here's some technological stuff. Here's these new factions you've never heard of, but you're expected to remember their political <laughs> allegiances. This time, uh, so I can't tell if it's that now we're familiar with everything or now right. the the plot writing has kind of moved towards a synthesis where it's assumed that you know all of this background stuff. And now instead of giving you new information, it can say like, yes, and it can tell you a little bit more about it. In the Severn Tales where we're with Severn, he's kind of a, I guess, an assistant to Mina Gladstone at this point. He's supposed to paint her and paint what will be a famous portrait of her. So he's just hanging around. But she's also asking him a lot of questions about pilgrimage because he's dreaming yeah. them. He yeah. kind of sees the experiences of Bronlamia and all that's happening with all of the original characters 
but it's nice to see the hegemony's perspective now because now we're spending a lot of time with Mina Gladstone and we're seeing what is going to happen with the ousters and how intense this war is and how badly it starts to go. The hegemony starts off so confident in each chapter. It feels like they're just going to wipe out the ousters. There's not going to be any problem at all. And where we are now by chapter 25, it's looking pretty bad. The hegemony is not doing well. The presence of Joseph Severn here really does a, a thing that I like when sequels do, which is add more depth and maybe answer unresolved questions of the, the prequel book. So this was a big point of contention and question that we never got a real answer for in the Hyperion, the first Hyperion book, which was, who is the narrator? Sometimes it feels like the console was narrating, or at least like in the very first part of the book, it felt like that. Other times it almost felt like Silenus was the narrator because of the way that, you know, the kind of narration style and the poetics were happening in there. And other times it just felt like an omniscient third person narrator kind of giving us everything. But what we find in the fall of Hyperion is that Joseph Severn is dreaming everything. So like he has this kind of window into this world of this pilgrimage and it calls into question whether the first book was truly like whatever kind of narrator we were questioning or whether we're supposed to be, whether we're supposed to understand that Joseph Severn has been dreaming this whole time, that the entire first book was conveyed to us by Joseph Severn. Mm. Could that have been possible though? Because Joseph Severn was just created and he says he doesn't have mm. access to past memories. He only has access to certain dreams which are happening presently. So I think we could call into question what we see in these new chapters, the pilgrimage chapters. Are they the dreams? I assume they probably are. And they could be they could be limited or they could be there's the lens of Joseph Severn, so we don't know how accurate they mm. are. But I don't think the past could necessarily have been his dreaming. Well, keep in mind we're not we're not in the past. We're being told the past by people who are all within this journey of five days. So so long as Severn is more than five days old. Yeah. He should be hearing as an audience member the stories of oh, each individual yeah. character. Yeah, he's definitely, I think he's definitely older than the Shrike pil pilgrimage. Like he, he came into being more or less immediately after Keats died after having had his brain implanted in Bronlemia. And that sort of connection seems to be the reason he has this window, I would guess. That's the only sort of tangible link that you can draw that would explain why he's having these, these dreams. But yeah, it is entirely possible that he's dreaming this and he even dreamed that first book. However, I don't think it's like, unless I missed something, I don't think it's explicit that that's the case. You know, it's not obvious that that's the case, but you, you know, I think it's plausible. It's possible that that's the case. Definitely, definitely no answers are given. It's just the presence of him here yeah. offers a plausible solution to the problem that we ran into in the first, the first book. Hmm. But this book is not without its own complication. So, you know, we have this window into the pilgrims, but we also have this window into the hegemony war rooms and kind of led to believe that Severn is, you know, the, the reader's perspective. They're, they're the eyes of the reader inside of these deliberations. But then partway through, we get a scene where the ousters have just, you know, broken through. It's been announced that the ousters are now attacking all these different web, web worlds. And we get this quote, Gladstone says, I won't keep you gentlemen, but be assured that I expect total support when the declaration of war is submitted in five hours. You'll have it, says Gibbons. Gladstone held up a finger. Where is Severn? At the sight of the blank faces, she added, the poet, I mean, the one doing my portrait. 
Several aides looked at each other as if the chief had come unhinged. He's still asleep, said Lee Hunt. He's taken some sleeping pills, and no one thought to awaken him for the meeting. So now we're given a scene where it's inside the hegemony, but Joseph Severn isn't present to convey it to us. But he's also asleep. Raising the question again. Yeah, he's asleep. So is he he dreaming about the hegemony stuff? Is there a separate, again, third-person omniscient narrator? Dan Simmons is very tricky. He's very tricky. Do you think there's any kind of method, sort of rhyme or reason to this? Or it seems to me he's just sort of writing from whatever perspective seems best at that moment to convey that moment. And I think it almost feels to me like he's just sort of trusting the reader to use their imagination a little bit and just to interpolate it into their experience of events, you know, rather than becoming too obsessed with one particular rigid form. Do you think there's more reason sure. to it than that, or is it just? what he thinks is best at the moment for the sake of storytelling. I mean, I think that whatever it is, it's definitely a choice by him. You know, it's not, it's not outside of his control. It's not like an oversight. Yeah, no. Yeah. So, so in that sense, I would say it's deliberate. And I think that it's, yeah, he's just trusting the reader to be Be a good spot. Yeah. Smart enough to see what's going on, but not like pedantic enough to get really mad about it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. And I think it seems to me like he's just doing it because that's the best way to tell that particular story. Like, you can't tell Martin Salinas' story without, you know, his unique way of using language. So to have someone narrate that story would be a travesty. But then in the other situation in which, you know, Leonard Hoyt is telling the story, it produces so much more suspense to have him telling it and then he pulls out these secret diaries and it also just fits the genre he's writing in you know he's writing in different genres so it shouldn't surprise us you know he's also writing different narrative voices essentially well let's talk about it in terms of different genres because the first book was explicitly it felt to me like different genres not not assimilated together but side by side stacked on top of each other and again it was like it was not in a pedantic way you know he was doing different genres but it wasn't like this has to be a strict western this has to be a strict x this has to be a strict y he was still sort of yeah you know not not too pedantic about it then either you know but i think yeah i don't know yeah well what's going on with this the second round of it a lot less clear from a genre perspective i would say i mean obviously sci-fi but i don't know i didn't get any strong senses of any particular genres going on here just straight up sci-fi with lots of detective tropes like Severn again, you know, coming from the first story where it's a de- detective Bron Lamia, P.I. Bron Lamia, where that character John Keats is a character right out of a hard-boiled detective book. There's still some of that going on now, I think. So I think if if he doesn't know what to write about, he puts Severn in a weird hard-boiled scenario like going to a bar, getting drunk and going home with somebody and then ending up in a gunfight. It's very Mike Hammer. The Gladstone stuff also has this kind of military stratagem that I would associate with like a war novel, you know, uh, this kind of like it lays out the stakes of what are we doing? What what could go wrong? Okay, we're going to we're going to gamble on sending most of our fleet to Hyperion with, you know, of course, someone saying, Oh, well, you know, what if the Alsters weren't using hawking drives but if they're going at sublight speeds everyone laughs and then sure enough it turns out that oh of, you know of course they they were to me that seems like very war novel you know you you could have the same situations written about like napoleon or a world war ii novels you know written in napoleonic wars or in like a world war ii setting that's such a part of sci-fi though i feel like especially with the the space opera and you know starship troopers or ender's game there's so much 
there's many, many, many scenes in, in the war room, especially when sci-fis get made into movies. There's always a war, war room scene. Mm. So I feel like it's still part of the sci-fi. Part of the package. Part of the package. And, you know, I was thinking that there was a kind of slasher element to it, too. But maybe maybe that's also part of the package. But you have, you know, a group of group of people on this planet and one by one, they're getting picked off by the Shrike. Let's talk about these deaths. These deaths are great. We've been yeah. waiting for them. You know, only only Hetmastine. Hetmastine. Hetmastine gets killed in the first book as far as the pilgrimage. But all of these people, we keep expecting them to die, be murdered by the Shrike. And now one by one, they're just getting slashed, killed. The first one to go, I think, is Lenar Hoyt is the first one. And then he's reconstituted as Father DeRay after getting his throat cut. That's right. Killed as Lenore Hoyt. <laughs> reconstituted because of the, the cruciforms into DeRay. That was pretty slasher. Going down into the time tomb, into the Sphinx, the Shrike appears and just cuts his throat. Blood pours down him in a river. Yeah. It's a great scene. Who's next? Who is next? Was it Bron Lamia? Selena. It was. Right. This was a really interesting one because Silenus has long claimed that the Shrike is his muse. Mm-hmm. And I love this. The Shrike appears after he's a moment of deep inspiration. He just needs a little bit more time to finish. And the Shrike appears. And instead of communicating to him directly, and, the, and you know, it's said in the book, the Shrike never communicates with anyone. It's that his hand on a piece of paper writes, <laughs> it's time, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's really taking the uh, the muse-poet relationship to like really stunning new grounds of like, you know, the, the muse is also the murderer of the poet, but is communicating to the poet that it's time to die through poetry. <laughs> And he's like, no, no, he's like more time. He's like, no, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite scene in this in this book so far. He's been telling us and we got, I kind of forgot, not forgot, but stop caring about Silenus. I love his chapter in the last book, but he gets so annoying by the end of it. Just complaining about not being able to write. And finally, his muse comes, like you said, he's never had so much inspiration. He says for the last like 300 years, I think he's been writing the cantos. And he says in the last few hours now being so close to the shrike going to the the city of poets and just sitting there in this dead town writing his cantos he's never felt so much inspiration before it's just pouring out of him perfectly and then the shrike comes takes him away puts him on the tree puts him right in the thorn and i think his hand is still twitching still trying to write as if he still had paper as he died or as he is dying on the tree thought that was a very good death for martin silenus yeah Yeah. And of course, a death that was foretold in the first book by Prasad's yes, yeah, own visions. We knew it was going to happen. And sure yeah. enough, it did. And Kassad's He's not dead yet. Still going. He's not dead but yet. He's still got to fight. still got to fight the Shrike. Yeah. yeah. So we're... Shrike we versus Kassad. This, paper. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We have this new bit of... Inf- I don't want to say it's new information, but it's... See. He encounters Moneta. They have a totally destructive battle it's almost like an anime fight <laughs> where it's like there you know there you can imagine being in front of like the the pyramids at giza and the sphinx and stuff and they're just detonating all of these ancient artifacts and you know he has this great moment where he's like you know i think is my own life worth more than 
you know, the destruction of these timeless monuments. And he goes, ah, screw it. <laughs> he just <laughs> lobs a bunch of like, <laughs> he said like an electron gun that, you know, I guess would do like passing through matter in order to just destroy whatever's on the other end. Anyways. Yeah. I, I thought that was really, really fun. Very Arnold, you know? Yeah. And also very Avengers. What we, what we learn is that Moneta, her eyes encountering him for the very first time. And she says, you're the warrior that has been promised to us by what she calls the Lord of pain, the Shrike. And we learn that it's not that her and the Shrike are the same thing, but they are tied in a certain way. It does seem like a bit of a retcon, but you know we can we can forgive him for that. I think a what a retcon retcon short for retroactive continuity. Where this you see this in comic books all the time. So like in the very first issues of Superman, Superman had a totally different story. I don't think he even had a, a backstory at all. He was just Superman. But then like. 10 years after publication, they're like, oh, we need to give him a childhood. So they came up with the story of like Krypton. Don't quote me on this about Superman, but you know, this kind of thing where it's like you have a continuity and then later writers are like, this actually doesn't really work. So we're going to offer an Mm -hmm. alternate explanation Mm -hmm. for how things happened. So in the first book, Moneta's face morphs into the Shrike during a particularly steamy session of Militarotica. And and we're kind of left with the idea that Moneta and the Shrike are, if at, at minimum allied, at most one and the same. But here she really lays down the distinction and starts to say like, oh, it's a deception, but it feels like a retcon to me, which is fine. I don't know. I think it's always it's ambiguous in the first book to, to what extent she is or is not the Shrike. I think that ambiguity is sort of there. Maybe not a total retcon. Now seems to be at a state of truce with the Shrike and the last scene we get with Kassad is a leap of faith, a leap of trust as they step into a, fo- a portal into the future. If she She's moving back in time, so that's why she's not, she doesn't know who Kassad is because they've met before. And now if they're going into the future, he's going to find out exactly what her relationship with the Shrike is, but I think she does define it. She is the Shrike's keeper in mm. a way, and she's in charge of the time tombs. So she's in charge of making sure the Shrike makes his appointments, essentially. It's interesting that there are all these like staggered relationships over time in Hyperion. You know, this almost seems the reverse of the relationship that Ma- Marion Aspic has with Siri, the grandfather of the consul Ooh. in the Maui Covenant story, the the, uh, the consul's tale and the final tale of the Hyperion one, in which he, you know, is going forwards in time and then seeing his beloved at like ten years, eleven years in the future each time, so that you know. He sees her on seven occasions. The first time at 16, she's 16. The last time she's like 70. But here it's kind of like she's constantly seeing Kassad again, but they're heading in the opposite direction in their relationship. So the, fir- the, the, the first time he, he meets her is the last time she meets him, right? So interesting. This always all this play of time that's still going on in this book. So I guess that's one big continuing theme from the first book is this, you know, confusion around time. And that's also significant, isn't it, to the sort of the Hyperion War as well. Or the, the reason why the Technocore couldn't prevent or predict the war from happening because of this unknown quantity, which is Hyperion. And that kind of makes it a more interesting conflict, I think. Most conflicts and most stories take place on a three-dimensional plane of, you know, bad guy over there, good guys over here, you know, who's going to win. This takes place in, you know, in space. Alistair's over here, Technocore over there, hegemony over here, but also time. 
you know, the the time element of something from the future wants to change the past is is you know it's very Terminator, and it also adds a new element. It adds it adds more dimensionality to this narrative that I think is really interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm kind of thinking of this idea that I know we've talked about before, or at least uh, you and I have talked about this, exactly this idea of like what sci-fi does is you know we'll take one element of the world it is and sort of change it or invert it in some way or flip it and then play out the consequences of this. So it seems like that seems fundamental to me of like sci-fi. So, you know, the, yeah. the, the shrinking man would just be the one element changes. He gets really small. Whereas a book like Hyperion, these larger sort of sci-fi epics have multiple sort of inversions going on simultaneously and in different locations, kind of like, you know, a watch with the gears turning in different ways. And Hyperion very much like feels like that. There's a lot of shifts going on. But it is based on these inversions, which so you can, you can pick out and investigate separately. But also, I don't know, it's harder to coalesce into a, a single whole. So you get these know, possible retcons and different narrative voices and stuff. It's like there's so much going on that it's almost hard to make a whole of it. And I guess that fits mm-hmm. with the theme of Hyperion, the incomplete, the fragmentary as being sort of, I don't know, the nature of literature in a way. Silenus is unfinished poems, is unfinished cantos. But are we getting any closer to understanding the things that are going on and why this war is happening and what the Shrike's purpose is? I feel like the hints we get are potentially giving us enough to start to know what might happen. Severn, in talking to Mina Gladstone, in dreaming, and in talking to us being the narrator, he tells us that Mina Gladstone has engineered this war with the Alsters, so she wants it to happen. And he says that it's probably because she's trying to bargain with the Technocore, because even though they're in a civil war, they're apparently all afraid of Hyperion. The destruction of humanity and the hegemony have all been predicted, but again, like you said, because of the existence of Hyperion, that's all, that prediction can't be 100%, it's only 95 whatever percent. And the pilgrims are sent because they also contribute to this unknown factor. So something is trying to be engineered to fix the past, but then the present is also trying to throw that unknown factor in there to stop that fix. I can't tell if the hegemony is trying to, they're at war with the Austers, but are they trying to change the course of the future or are they trying to keep it straight ahead? I think the Austers are trying to change the course. I don't get a sense that the hegemony has a positive vision for the future other than just static. I mean, this is a very, we've been shown time and time again, that it's a very decadent society. It's a very, I was going to say conservative, but I think that like, it's not social conservative, conservatism that we're talking about. It's just like a very, just short sighted, decadent society that has everything it needs and doesn't want anything to change. Whereas the two, the two agents of change appear to be the techno core for reasons you know we discussed last episode about trying to build an ultimate intelligence possibly trying to end humanity you know we're not really sure what the technocore's motivations are yet and then the ousters who appear to have pioneered a new way of living and a new type of humanity a type of humanity that lives in swarms that is totally adept to living in space yeah but we still don't know a whole lot about them, you know, hoping that in the next half of this book, we get a little bit more on both fronts. There's a, to illustrate the, oh, I see, we're, there's a secret wink to the listeners. Apparently, <laughs> apparently Zach knows something that we don't know. 
To illustrate the idea of the decadence of the hegemony, I love when Severn goes to hang out with these these artists. They have this ridiculous dinner, and the one leans over and he says that everything has to be art, even defecating, even eating, everything should be an art. And he says, for our race to achieve the true Satori, for us to move to that next level of consciousness and evolution that so many of our philosophies proclaim, all facets of human endeavor must become conscious strivings for art. And the point is to say, yes, everything, war is great and we should make art out of war. So he wants to always have killing and blood and war so it can look beautiful because war must be waged in a beautiful way. It is a, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how much time you guys have spent with with artists, but you know, it's, it's a, it's an interesting capture, interesting snapshot of a kind of like artistic mindset of like the point of everything is the aesthetic beauty of it or finding the aesthetic beauty of it rather than any kind of like functional element to it. Hmm. it. It reduces everything to decoration rather than function or tool hmm. or goal, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'm just spitballing here, but you know, it, it was an interesting yeah. conversation that I felt like illuminated that felt like it was drawn from the deep well of experience, personal experience of Dan Simmons. <laughs> well, it's, it's also the funny sort of like context of that scene of it. it's taking place. If I think of it in a dinner party of some kind, and there are different people there. So Seven's there. This other artist, Reynolds, is there. But also uh, General Morpurgo is there. And this artist, Reynolds, who you just quoted, also says, like, um, he, he refers to an obsolescent will to win. And then Morpurgo reacts to this, or a voice officer reacts to this, the obsolescent will to win. He says, of course, obsolescent. Do you think a sculpture wishes to defeat the clay? Does a painter attack the canvas? For that matter, does an eagle or a tomahawk assault the sky? Eagles are extinct. Grumble Morpurgo. Perhaps they should have attacked the sky. It betrayed them. <laughs> then that's where the conversation ends. So I think I think it is. I don't know. I don't know how much I would be willing to hinge like too much of like uh, I don't know. Dan Simmons is on view on that sort of comment, but it's, it certainly I think goes to show the sort of unique humor a little bit of this book as well. I think it is quite a funny book actually, mm-hmm. which we've not really talked about, but mm-hmm. it is kind of an entertaining read. It's kind of funny. It's trying to be funny at least. I think it also this sort of idea of true story is like shows that Reynolds is sort of part of this Senostic sort of cult almost of religion, I suppose. Yeah, religion. Hmm. Which is still clearly very popular among the the the, the arts the artists. And it sort of reminds us a little bit of the, the Salinas quote from the previous book, you know, he says, Ah, I've been as agnostic, I've followed religion that hell, I've even created religions. You know, religions are all over the place, but they don't seem to have any distinctive value. You know, the Catholic, the Father DeRay, who comes back in this book, we might want to talk about, about that a little bit. You know, he's very different from Lenar Hoy. He's full of life, but he openly admits that he falsified evidence to try and give to give a proof of Christianity. And he said it's ironic that in this late stage of Christianity that it's not religious heresy per se that is going to get, get you excommunicated, but rather lack of adherence to the scientific method. Um, which is kind of a sort of funny comment and just goes to show sort of the, de- the degraded states of religions in this book. Like, you know, you compare it to Dune there with Zen Sunni, but I think religion is a much more serious force in Dune than it is here. Here it's just sort of a, it has like very little real weight in the world. Whereas in Dune, obviously, the Bene Gesserit wielding phenomenal power of the universe because, of, you know, of the control of religion and, you know, the deification of Leto II and all these other aspects, you know, the sort of prophetic sort of revelations of, of Muad'Dib, you know, the religion is a much more serious topic in Dune 
as it is here. And I don't even necessarily think Dune is a more religious book. I think I would argue they're both equally atheistic, but here, religion is much degraded status than it is in Dune. Well, in this book, the context of that religion's existence is in a totally atheistic and materialistic society as as personified by these artists, by, you know, all these military leaders. No one's invoking God, you know, in their fight against the ousters. The one, the one like living religion seems to be the Church of the Shrike that people actually do still practice. And, you know, they worship at the altar of pain. You know, the pain and suffering are the only real means of transcendence for these people, which again is a very physical sensation. So even the religion of the materialistic universe does seem to be something like the Church of the Strike. There's also a bit more on this idea of creating God. We have a couple more mentions of Taylor here. Are are we looking forward to more Taylor's stuff? Do you think that's sort of been dropped a little bit? Because I know at the beginning of the first book, we talked about, you know, the Taylor idea of like creating God, you know, emerging towards God was quite a big theme. But now, you know, since then, later in the book, it got sort of dropped a little bit. We talked about, do you you think it's been picked back up here? I feel like there are hints of it, but I'm also not really clear uh, how to frame it in text as a whole. It feels to me like we just haven't read enough of this book. Like we stopped on, you know, at the end of chapter 24 and so far it just seems like all of the pieces are just being put into play right now. You know, we've had the number of character deaths. We've had the ousters break through on the web, but nothing's really come of it. We don't really have any answers. And one of the, one of the biggest critiques I get of this book and, and the book that came before it is that as one person said to me, it feels like Hyperion just exists as a backstory so that the story in the fall of Hyperion can be told. Mm. I don't think that's true, but I do think that everything we've read so far, these first 24 chapters are just backstory for whatever can come next for, you know, the, the climactic scene that Dan Simmons wants to tell. That's how it appears to me. That makes sense. There's some speculation on the Technocore trying to create God. It's kind of similar what we got what we got in the first book. There's a little there's a conversation about Deus Ex Machina too, and what kind of God will come to save people. But the first idea is the different Technocore elements and what kind of God they want, and whether or not the Ultimates who want to destroy humanity, or well, we don't exactly know what they want to do, but it sounds dangerous. Yeah, I think it's the volatiles that want to destroy humanity. I think it's the ultimates who want to some who don't really care about humanity. They just they have their own project. We don't really know what they would do to humanity. Yeah, Yeah, they might be just as violent as the volatiles. I believe. I think they. I think it would depend on whether it helped further their aims or not. Like, there's no, you know, essential part of them which wants to get rid of mankind. Whereas the volatiles, the whole thing is that we're going to get rid of mankind. We'll be our own thing. Whereas the ultimates are like, well, we'll get rid of mankind if it's instrumental to our success. But if we don't need to, why bother? Is my impression. That's what Mina Gladstone. Well, no, you're right. That's what Mina Gladstone asks. She says the the core works towards its own ends, but then she also asks, "Do you feel that humanity no longer figures as a means towards those ends?" She asks Severin's that, and Severin doesn't know. He's like, "Well, I can't exactly answer that. I'm a creature of both uh, Technocore and humanity." But yeah, it could be that they are no longer in the the means of the ends. Then at one point, Duray is talking about them too and saying they're trying to create God in the absence of actually knowing God. And in doing that, when they create God, they might need humanity to look up at it. So they might leave them. Then later, when they're talking about these different gods to come and save them, they say that the Ousters are obsessed with Hyperion because they think 
it's the new birthplace for a new hope for humankind. So something's going to come out of there that's going to be extremely powerful that might give humankind a new hope. And somehow the ousters see that humanity is going towards some kind of crash. Whether or not that crash is the ultimate building God that will end humanity, I don't know. But the conversation is still going about creating a God. Yeah, I, I love this position that humanity finds itself in of like, they've built this artificial intelligence and they're basically saying, do you still need us? Like, like mm-hmm. humanity's kind of like, I don't want to say begging for recognition, but humanity's positionality in this universe is contingent upon whether the AI Technocore still needs them or not. Yeah. With the implication of if the Technocore no longer needs them, then humanity will die. And I think that's a really, that kind of like dependency for survival by making yourself the, almost like the the host to a parasite, you know, do, asking the parasite, do you still need me? Yeah. Or are you going <laughs> to leave? You know, that's a, that's a different vision of AI that I think we've seen before mm. in our readings. And it's an interesting sort of connection there with the parasite to perhaps also Duray and Hoyt's parasites the, the cruciform which i had not drawn before but i guess yeah you, there are two different instances of a sort of parasite that overpowers its host and outlives its host and then for whom the host just remains alive for the sake of the parasite which you know i guess maybe is a different way of framing ai but obviously it's a common trait in sci-fi stories i mean think of uh, i think of the, uh, the the bug exterminator in uh, men in black as the uh, example par excellence of course sugar for sugar water <laughs> Were you surprised that uh, only DeRay was reincarnated and that Hoyt was just didn't come back? I was expecting they they talked about that when when he when Hoyt is murdered by the Shrike because he has the two cruciforms, two bodies should be coming back, two personalities. And it's a DeRay that seems to be not at all lesser than the previous DeRay because we've seen these when you come back from these cruciforms, you get more and more like a lifeless ball of clay and you become yeah. one of the three score and ten but why only deray and why is he so why is he fine you know they it seems like they gesture towards it taking a long time it takes a long number of iterations for this kind of degradation of the human body into this lump of clay to happen but yeah, why only DeRay? It seems like they, they gesture towards it as a kind of like, oh, there wasn't enough mass. The the parasite will wait generations if it needs to in order to finally make its its split. Yeah, it's... It seems also this case that like, it seems like Lenar Hoyt wished to die and the Shrek granted his wish. All right. Yeah, that's true. You know, I want to explore the idea of Shrike granting wishes because this is something that we haven't picked up on from the first book. Everyone knows you go to the Shrike pilgrimage in order for the Shrike to grant the wish. This is actually something I had meant to talk about much earlier in the episode. The Shrike has granted every single pilgrim's wish. Okay. To a degree. To, to a degree, sure. Yeah. Hear me out. Hoyt, his wish was to die. So the Shrike cuts his throat, and he's resurrected as DeRay. Hoyt got his wish granted. Now, Hoyt could come back, sure. But you'll notice what the Shrike didn't do. The Shrike didn't impale him on the Tree of Thorns. Hmm. Silenus wanted to finish his manuscript. He got so close, and then he's impaled on the Tree of Thorns. Now, 
Did he get his wish granted? In a sense, I think it remains to be seen where that piece will end. But then pay attention to Bron Lamia's death too, because he didn't impale Bron Lamia on the Tree of Thorns. It says he came up to Lamia and stabbed a finger behind her ear into her brain. Oh. And so she didn't get impaled on the tree of thorns, but what he did do is he stabbed her right where the Keats implant is. Mm. And I think that's important too. Mm. her. What if I recall her wish was to learn more about the techno core. She's trying to get to the bottom of, you know, this grand conspiracy that she sees playing out. She loves but my point mysteries. is he's not just killing all these people. All, all of the way they dies are intimately tied to their wishes. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I'm, I'm not convinced that, Salinas gets his wish though because he doesn't finish his cantos which was his wish so it seems like the shrike isn't really interested in granting wishes but I don't know I wonder if maybe there's something in it for the shrike to does it need people's wishes does it somehow need other people's belief in it is it one of those type of creatures you know it, I, I don't know that that could be the case because it doesn't seem to be doing it for their sake because they don't really get what they want it seems to have its own end for sure, but I think that end has to remain a mystery. Not has to, but I think I don't think Dan Simmons would ever tell you why the Shrike does anything. Or I guess I guess what I'm saying is is the Shrike parasitic on our belief in it, or is it parasitic on our wishes and fears? Is that the point? Well, it does seem to like to torment people. That's a pretty, you know, big indication that whatever it's doing is in some way tied to people's experience of the shrike i mean if they're on the tree of thorns wriggling around not dying then you know it seems to be something the shrike is concerned about but it also raises the question because to me moneta doesn't seem like a villain moneta is not villain coded you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so if moneta is in a sense allied with the shrike it really calls into question how villainous the shrike is despite the shrike being maximum villain coded <laughs> one dimensionally villain coded <laughs> well isn't she said to be like his keeper or something i'm not really it's not really clear what that involves she seems almost to be sort of like his i don't know his manager or his his kirky yeah he's his keeper she says i am his consort and nemesis i am his keeper she but refers to, she refers to it as the lord of pain you know she's speaking to katard she says, the Lord of Pain awaits. He says, you are its servant. She says, never. I am his co- consort and nemesis, his keeper. You came from the future with it? No, I was taken from my time to travel back in time with him. Then who were you before? And then the question is interrupted by the appearance of the Shrike. I like that word nemesis because, you know, on one end, it means, you know, a rival, an arch enemy. Yes, I'm reading from the dictionary right now. But the other one, the other definition of this is the inescapable agent of someone or something's downfall. And to me, that raises a question. Is the Shrike the agent of Mineta's downfall? Or is Mineta the agent of the Shrike's downfall? It's an ambiguous statement when she says that she's his nemesis. Mm. We've not really talked much about Manic Gladstone. She's a very vivid character. She's very, you know, influential in the script. We opened the episode with a quote from or about her but i don't know what 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 she's like the biggest new addition along with seven in terms of characters but she doesn't seem i don't know like she's humanized a lot more in this story than she is in the first one the first one she's just this disembodied figure that we only ever see in like uh, what's it called fatlands fatlands right she's seen in fatlands yeah. holograms 
But here we actually do meet her. And she's a lot more, at least for me, she's a lot more of an interesting and sympathetic character than I anticipated. She almost is described as being like a kind of Machiavellian dictator of a sort, in, or at least a sort of just a bureaucrat, um, authoritarian. But here she's, I don't know, a lot more sympathetic, I would say. She's quite an admirable character. I think it's harder here because we don't have a lot to go on in terms of her character. We're not really sure of her motivations. Without knowing a character's true motivations, it's hard to evaluate their actions as they move through the the narrative. We're told at the start of Hyperion, she tells the consul that, quote, our intelligence report suggests that at least one of the seven pilgrims is an agent of the ousters. We do not at this time have any way of knowing which one it is. But then in this book, we're told Gladstone loved the web. She loved the human beings in it. For all their shallowness and selfishness and inability to change, they were the stuff of humankind. Gladstone loved the web. She loved it enough to know that she must help in destroying it. So so we've gone from this idea of Gladstone being aware of a spy and presumably wanting to stop it to now understanding that Gladstone is actually the puppet master of the downfall of the web. But we don't really understand why. We're not given a reason. So she's a mystery at this point. I have another quote that's the same kind of idea, but it's comparing her and the console. Console, it says the console had sold his soul and will pay a terrible price, but it's nothing compared to the treachery Gladstone was prepared to suffer for. As the symbolic leader of 150 billion human souls, she was prepared to betray them all in order to save humanity. What on earth does that mean? Why is she destroying humanity in order to save it? Is it playing with time again? Maybe two different realities if it's this this schrodinger's time tomb you know do you have to destroy one to have the other one open up and everything's fine again i don't know but it also could be that she's like leto putting everyone in a terrible golden path destroying humanity for 600 years so it can't grow and then letting letting it fly to avoid some other other terrible event but 150 billion people i don't see how you can kill 150 billion people and decide that it's for a greater good or that it's the means to an end. We have no idea what the end is. I guess we'll have to read on and find out. Yeah. This is the tricky part about reading only half a book, I guess, is that it leaves us with more questions than answers. No, maybe that's well, a good thing. Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is. <laughs> I'm sure. You get to find right. out how it finishes. Next time, Fall of Hyperion, Part 2. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob. <laughs>